Welcome to the FileMaker DevCast with Portage-based solutions. We are a Claris Platinum partner and a group of FileMaker certified developers. You'll be listening to one of our regular dev meetings, where we gather to discuss various program topics primarily related to Claris FileMaker. These meetings are an opportunity for us to connect with each other, to share our insights and experiences, to learn, and to hone our craft. We're honored that you've chosen to spend this time with us, and we hope you'll learn and grow right along with our team. If you have any thoughts on what you hear, please do share your feedback. Welcome to the FileMaker DevCast. I'm your citizen developer and show host, Dan Smiley. And today on the program, John Newhoff and his team at Portage Bay Solutions are going to take us through OAuth 2.0. This is a industry standard security protocol and we're going to break down how to use it to communicate with Google's API and how it can be implemented so that you can log into applications using your Google credentials. We're going to nerd out on some cool stuff, so stick around. The big question is, is you know, with the FileMaker solutions, we have a lot of clients that are using um, automated emails and they're using Gmail or uh, or other other forms. And recently this year, um, Google basically um, <clears throat> deprecated uh, the process by which a lot of our a lot of our solutions that had been using uh, the Gmail API and OAuth 2.0 to connect. They deprecated those processes. Previously, FileMaker solutions needing to use the uh, Google IP API <clears throat> either used a loopback IP address flow or an out of band flow and um, both of those are have been deprecated with uh, key dates for compliance in 2022 so all of those processes no longer work um, the loopback ip address had a flow uh, vulnerability to man in the middle attacks and that was using a loopback ip address you know 127.0.0.0 and it would uh, your app would basically reload it what was returned from google but um but as as we know man in the middle attacks can um can compromise a lot of things on HTTPS. <laughs> and so they could easily uh, intercept that OAuth response and gain access to the authorization codes that you're using. Um, another one that we had used for several solutions way back in the day was OAuth uh, out of bounds. Um, and that was, uh, you could use that <clears throat> in native clients uh, as a redirect URI like web apps to accept credentials after using, a, after the user approves an OAuth consent request and the OOB or, um, out of band flow has it poses a remote phishing risk and so clients basically must migrate to an alternate method to protect against the vulnerability so those two were the processes that had been used previously some had gone down the path of using OAuth 2.0 and using a uri but in order to replace those um, we've only got a couple of solutions that we can we can use i can dive into it a little bit here if we were looking at the documentation let me go yeah, ahead and share my screen question yeah, real quick just um just to make sure i'm totally clear on stuff obviously um we are another option besides um complying with google's um higher security stuff is is to just use a different smtp server uh true true um like like you know we've done once we've done for some clients with with mailgun maybe it's worth a second or two just talking about the circumstances where that's a reasonable strategy versus where you really need to do the the google um integration 
I know for some of our emails that we send from databases, they're just they're really just notifications to developers. You know, this condition has occurred, that condition has occurred. And in those cases, just going through Mailgun is still, you know, an, an easy option, I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mailgun and other others like it make yeah, it, make it super SMB. simple. Yeah. Um, so I think the, uh, the places where that doesn't work is where you've got a client who has uh, special email accounts that they want to use, like Gmail. And they want it to work in their ecosphere. Um, do those support uh, using a Gmail address for the from and? and I mean, then, you uh, can you can make the from address anything you want. Yeah. But but you have a couple of problems, I think. One, depending on who the client is and their their IT sensibilities, um, you know, it's one thing to have the from address be the Gmail address, but everything else in the mail header is going to show the mail routing through Mailgun. And some people might might not like that, you know that it, that that there's an appearance that the mail didn't come from their domain. Yeah. Um, and then probably the biggest thing though is is if it goes through Mailgun, it's not going to appear in the sent mail folder for the Gmail account you're sending it from. Yeah, and the same would be true for Microsoft, right? <clears throat> so we also have clients who like to use Microsoft for yeah. sending email, and um, the same the same thing is happening in Microsoft's sphere. And it's not just me mail, it, it would be any API interaction with Google. So once you have your OAuth 2 connection to Google or to Microsoft uh, Graph, you can make any API calls using um, once your credentials are set up. So so mail is a big is a big one, but there's also all the other things that you need OAuth 2.0 uh, connection for Google in order to do API interaction. And same with Microsoft's. Microsoft is doing the same thing. They're deprecating this year as well, uh, their connections. They're a little more, maybe letting some of the legacy stuff still hang a little bit longer than Google is, but but the documentation I was seeing was going to put that stuff out of, out to pasture. So in our order to, um, yeah, so you could use uh, alternate methods for sending SMTP, but, um, but you would need it if you had any other Google API or Microsoft API interaction. Um, and so using using it and securing it is is worthwhile. Um, looking at the Google's OAuth 2.0 documentation, um, we've got a few different scenarios that they provide. Uh, they provide different scenarios for server-side web access, JavaScript web apps, um, mobile and desktop apps, TV and device apps, and service accounts. Um, and I just outlined the process. And it's pretty much the same for all of them. Basically, in Google, you'd create a project, you enable the APIs for the project, um, giving them it permission to use those APIs, and then you create authorization credentials, and then set the scopes, the access scopes. Um, uh, one quick question there. So in the past with other APIs, uh, uh, many APIs are confused by FileMaker. Uh, they don't know if they can't 100% tell if it's a JavaScript app or a, a mobile app uh, or even, you know, whatever. Um, is there, have you found any, have you come run across that scenario uh, where FileMaker was confused on what kind of uh, integration, or sorry, the Google API was confused on what kind of FileMaker integration uh, needed to be specified? Yeah, yeah. So it is a little ambiguous. Um so if we look at which scenario, basically server-side can use a HTTP REST. It's of course only accessible over HTTPS, but um, it will redirect the user for authorization 
to uh, the Google login page to provide access. And so you have to have a web viewer session, a web viewer open in order to provide that redirect. And then it uses a redirect URI, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And, and that's in order to send back the response. So server-side web apps is one possible option. JavaScript web apps is the other, because uh, it can also use HTTP REST endpoints. It's accessible over HTTPS only. It redirects to the Google authorization and uses redirect URI. And you can see basically the process, they request a token, user logs in with consent, sends back the authorization code, and then you use that authorization code in the app to exchange for a token. You get your token response and a refresh token, and then you can continue to call with that uh, with that token. And, and there's a refresh token, so if you if the token expires, you can use the refresh token to uh, to refresh it, and that's the same with the JavaScript web app. So it's one of those two that we we've generally been trying to use and 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 use yeah. with the URI callback. The other ones uh, for mobile and desktop apps, um, it uses a custom URI scheme specific like to Android, iOS, and UW you know Universal Windows project I think it's called or Universal Windows platform UWP, and that generally consists of using um, a signed registered app ID. So if you're creating a iOS app, it you get a special ID from Apple and then you can use that in the URL scheme and it, the iOS device will pass it back through to the to that app. Um, we're not able to do that with FileMaker, but um, but if you were going to build a standalone app, you might be able to use that. So I'm not sure about FileMaker yeah, standalone sure. apps on on a mobile device, but it may be able to use it because uh, you do have to get an app ID. So Okay, that's cool. Previously, you could use the loopback and OB, but those have been deprecated for that. So the other one that I found interesting was TV and device apps. Now, this assumes that the app can't keep secrets, right? So it's got very limited scopes. Um, it can see the email address, but it can't do anything with email. It can save files to Google Drive, get profile information, and use open use for open ID uh, to hand a user off to different services. It uses a browser and a separate device. Like imagine on your TV, you go to connect to YouTube. What it does is it gives you a, a code in a URL, and then they'll generally like throw up a um, QR code that you can just scan that takes you to a site on your phone where you can authenticate it. And then it gives you an access code that you key back into your TV. And then your TV is connected to your, um, to your Gmail account, right? It's got access to whatever scopes have been created. But let, again, that's very limited. It won't allow you to do email. It's, um, it's really sort of just accessing your um, profile information and such. Um, and then the last one, which is really good, but it has, you know, has broader spectrum is service accounts and service accounts intended for server only tasks. It uses a JWT, which is the JSON web token, right? And um, it it can use domain wide authority. And the that one is a hard one for big companies to buy off on because they don't want anybody to have domain wide authority. Um, uh, there there are ways of controlling that um, depending on how they have their domain set up. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can do in in IAM to seg segment the company into different sections. So you can't have one lead over like accounting, can't have any control in, you know, uh, marketing or something like that. So there's all sorts of ways to control access with the service account in those, but the domain wide allows it to do certain things. Like you wanted to send an email, it can send an email on, 
you know, anybody in the company's uh, account, basically it's authorized to do that. So that's, they're meant for servers to be able to make certain processes happen, basically interact with, um, like EC2 instances. <clears throat> if you're, if you're using Amazon, I'm trying to remember what it's called in, uh, in the windows environment, but, uh, but basically, um, compute instances, um, in Google cloud. And so the, now the, they, the benefit, can, yeah, go ahead. The, the benefit of service accounts, like, yeah, I mean, you're not tied to a user, right? That's, that's the main benefit Absolutely. with the other, the other processes you're not. So in this yeah. case, I mean, you, you have like a robot acting on behalf of the company, uh, reaching into all the, the different applications, uh, which I mean, to me, uh, you know, it has its, it has its value definitely, but, um, only if you're not trying to be specific to a user, which in some of our cases that we've used it, uh, service accounts could make the most sense for some of the stuff that we try to do. Yeah. And they, they do, they have to be taken <clears throat> with great care because they are domain wide. So if you're using graph service account, it has access to email for all the users under that domain, right? Same with, uh, same with Google. And so you're basically giving FileMaker complete access to all of those email accounts, both read, write, whatever you need in order to be able to send email. So that yeah. that's the tough one, I think, for for most uh, most clients to sign off on. But other ones, you know, that um, that really want it to fully integrate with Outlook, um, totally works. Totally works fine. And it's so it's, can it's, the service account be restricted? I mean, can they? Uh, so can that's they, what I was security the, you know, privileges limited. <laughs> You can't, so that I was looking into that and I couldn't find any way to do it where you can lock it down to specific accounts. Now okay. you can, you um, because it's a service, it's not a, it's not a user. It's even though it has a, an address, an email address associated with the service account, that isn't basically an address that you can send email from. What it is, is it, it controls access. So it's able to, if you were accessing like mail API, it's accessing, accessing on behalf of the user. Uh, it's you, you give in the IAM, you give it permission to do certain tasks, but those tasks are domain wide. And from what I could tell, you couldn't like say, oh, only use only access to John's account and, you know, and Andy's account and <laughs> nobody else's because that would yeah. be perfect. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so service accounts, because of that, uh, are a little bit, you know, there, there's more security concerns. You got to be a lot more careful. And in all of these instances, realistically, you don't want these being performed at the client side. You want any of these interactions to be happening from the server. So you want to write the scripts to, to perform all these access, all these functions from the server to protect any against man in the middle attacks. Right. Um, okay. What we're, so even what we're on, talking even about is facing. Oh, yeah, yeah. so you would fire it off and do a PSAW script on the server is what you need in order to send email on behalf of the user. You don't want to, you don't want to have it in the, the local browser or, or the local file maker <clears> copy <throat> and, and with, using with, HTTP from that local client. With the, with a possible exception, if you had a, you had a network environment where you, where, where the applications never accessed from outside the secure corporate local area network environment. It would be that would be less of an issue. Yeah. Yes. If you're always on a tight VPN, yeah. then then I think you your risk goes way down, right? If the, if you're yeah in a tight little private network, then yeah, if, there's, if there's never a coffee shop, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, which a lot of, you know, a lot of companies require. And so then it, it, it works, right? Because nothing, but FileMaker isn't able to get outside that, that little controlled there, zone. There's other advantages to doing it PSOS anyway. You know, it, it does, it does give you a, a little bit better performance for the end user. You know, if you don't have that delay associated with the, you know, if you just handed it off to the server, it performs a little bit faster on the, for the client. So, yeah. so the difference here that we're talking about is, you know, we were talking about the user versus service account, but it sounds like just as long as the server is a user and it's not tied to anybody who can come and go, don't you get the same advantage there? I think the service account is easier, right? I mean, you don't service need account to... is easier. You don't have to have the user the authenticate URI. it. You you basically get a, a you know, a, you get the key pair. You get a private, public and private key, and so you're supplying it in all the call requests. And so that needs to be server to server. You don't want that to go over. Um, you don't want that to be coming from FileMaker client at a remote location. Uh, right, because it could be intercepted uh, as right. an HTTP REST call, HTTPS call. Um, Does that still have token validation? So you have to refresh tokens in. Yes, yeah, it just it, okay. it just has so, that's the authorization code uh, yeah. request is is in that process. And yeah, let me go down to that one there. Service accounts, yeah, we create and sign the JWT. Use JWT request token. Oh, I take that back. Nope, it uses the JWT request token. And we get the token response and then use the token to call Google API. Okay. Yeah. So I'm that, sorry, that token that. probably expires it has, just like the other one or has an expiration. Uh, it has your, <laughs> it has your key embedded in it. Uh, 64 bit. I, I've, I don't recall from when I did do it. Cause we did do a service account in, um, in the test solution that we were building. Um, I mean, cause if it doesn't, that eliminates that extra step of having to like, validate for an additional request token. I mean, essentially, once you get one, you don't ever have to validate it again. I mean, I'm sure there's probably yeah, a Well, you use, a JW, you use a, the JWT to request a token, and then you get yeah. your token response, and then you use that token to make your calls. So you don't have a refresh token, as it were. You, you just basically, it's kind of like the basic authentication uh, process in a sense, because <laughs> yeah. you're sending over this. Now it is it is theoretically secure, but I I, I don't want to get into the security aspect of that one and unpack it. <laughs> that you just need to make sure yeah. that that's because that that has you know domain wide authority. It needs to be secure. It just needs to be make make sure that it's very secure and not accessible, so that it can't be uh, pulled apart. Um, <laughs> yeah. Service count is it was a lot easier, and then having to go with the other one where you have to have the user basically approve that you want to use their account was was the slightly more difficult one, and um, yeah. So the URI process is what's needed. Sorry, I'm scrolling all over the place here. Um, so in the server side or the JavaScript, we're using a, a redirect URI, right? We we get our request, we get our authorization code, so we request the token. And the user has to log in and consent. And so I, I can show, uh, let me let me show you quickly uh, what it looks like on the um, on the Google side. I'll basically in security settings for the for Google here, you can see uh, under third party apps, and this is under uh, settings on your in, in your email account 
or on your Google account um, to go in and check access. And each time I've gone in there, it's changed a little bit. So I, I didn't bother like funneling how to get there. Um, but you can just Google it uh, <laughs> and third-party apps access to your account. So right now FileMaker has access. So I can, I can remove this access, right? And uh, now it can no longer send or it, do whatever scope was requested by, by the app. Um, and then the way that that scope scope request happens is I can test for authorization in this this app. Basically, we've got it asks me choose an account to authorize to use so it, it can get access. And so I'm selecting this one. And right now, because this app isn't verified, and verification is another sort of sort of deep hole that doesn't quite work well with FileMaker um, that I can get into here in a second you kind of have to bypass it and know that you're being invited in in this developer mode or you have to get the app um, verified and the verification process is a little more difficult so right now we're doing it in a, in a developer account and then basically it's saying portagebay.com wants access to your google account and this is what it's these are the scopes that it's going to provide right in order to do email we need to read compose send and permanently delete all your email <laughs> we want to have complete access which is that's what you need right so because at the moment you have, you know, it makes perfect sense. But this is where the user gets to decide, do I want to trust this, this process to touch my Gmail? And if you say continue, the URI is called and it passes it back. And then, um, and then we're given the, um, the access token and a refresh token. And then we can then test and send emails and, uh, and everything should work fine. So with that process, the URI, so you can see we're able to send emails now with that because I gave it permission. Um, so with that process, what what um, what we want to, what's happening is is that URI needs to have an endpoint, and you can't like Google or FileMaker isn't an endpoint. Basically, it's a local client that's running, right? So it's sending out this request. It needs to get that request back, and you need to be able to address it. And this is where Google does it with um, on mobile on not mobile mobile apps and iOS and Android apps. This is where it does it with uh, with an app ID. Um, but for FileMaker, the only way to do that is is we basically treat it like a server or a JavaScript app, and and we pass it back into FileMaker. Basically, passes it back into. So here, I'll just take a look at that code. Sorry, I'm drawing on here. Um, here's some code of a sample URI. Right. And this is just an HTML document that would be put on a server. The server does have to be uh, in the domain of the project under the under the company that has the project. So yeah, you can you can test also in, in local host. So you don't have to actually have it hosted. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. In development mode, you can test in in, in local host using yeah. loop uh, loopback. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's pretty cool. So, so what's going on in the HTML document here? So this is what an, a URI is. And um, I was going to read the little thing that I wrote about it so that I wouldn't forget, but a re redirect URI is basically a re reply URL. It's a location where the authorization server sends the user once the app has been successfully authorized and granted an authorization code or token. The authorization server sends that code or token to the redirect URI. So in FileMaker's instance, it makes the call, it gets permission, and then Google is going to send back to that URL a response, and we need to capture that response. 
And so in order to do that, we create a web page that is going to receive that response. And it's going to open that in, um, in a web, uh, web browser. And that web browser is going to be prompted to open up FileMaker, the solution that we're pulling it from, and pass it as a script variable. So, so this is sort of currently the workaround for using the URI um, in order to get a get that initial authentication and receive it to get a token and refresh token. So we've got a, basically when the page loads, we've got an event listener. It says, you know, DOM content loaded. Great, let's let's do this. We're going to get some information and we're going to take the payload that we receive and pass it to this as as a parameter to this URL. And this URL is, you know, in this instance, PBS OAuth 2 API. This would be the name of the FileMaker solution that you're going to call. And because it's using the FMP uh, URL, it's going to open. It would theoretically, depending on how your FileMaker is installed on your machine, <laughs> it would theoretically prompt FileMaker to open up and receive this call, in which case we need to have uh, the script that we're calling. Uh, in this case, it's, you know, Google callback URI, but it could be any, any script. It would call it and pass it this parameter. So we're sort of, fudging it a little bit of, of what a standard URI is. Realistically, in a normal solution, a web app or server, the server itself is going to receive this and put it into a bucket, right? Or the uh, server is going to receive it and it's going to put it, uh, store that into a database at the server level and pr provide access to the user on the front end. Um, and in which case, none of this is going to be exposed. In the FileMaker instance, when you do do this, this is exposed in the uh, as an HTTP call. And so when they do authenticate in this process, there is another, in order to avoid a, a man in the middle attack, this does have to be performed on a secure network because theoretically when this is happening, they this could be intercepted because it's sending the response back. So we're putting these URI pages up on an in-house server for us. What does somebody do if, let's just say, solo developer out there doesn't have his own in-house server? What's the process for setting up URI? Uh, you'd spin up a local development server using VS Code or something to your local host and then uh, use your local host URL as the, the location for your callback. So you just call, like, create an index file, HTML, throw your JavaScript in there. And then localhost would be the main address, and then the callback would be uh, whatever's written in the JavaScript back to your so, solution. So if a solo dev is deploying to another company, or let's say an in-house dev even, same same process? Well, I, I guess if, it, if it's just for testing. No, no, no. Like we're talking about how yeah. do we deploy this for a client? You'd have to spin up. I mean, in this method, you have to spin up your own server, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think um to that point, the um it could be any web server. It doesn't have to be the company's primary web server, I don't think. Um, as long as the like for us, we have whatever we have seven or eight servers, not all of which are serving web currently, but several of which are maybe most of which are any one of those are any one of those could host this this callback URI page. Yeah, I, I mean, any any page hosted, really. I mean, any any uh, pages hosted. I guess, I guess the key is, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the key is that the, the web server would have to have a valid SSL certificate for the domain 
in question, right? Mm-hmm. So it would o- only it'd be, yeah, be, per- it'd be preferred, yeah. yeah. Well, preferred, or you know, Zanin was saying the um, that the callback URI domain had to be the same as your. I didn't actually quite catch that. What, what, oh yeah, to... whatever you set up in the in in under that account, yeah, within Google, so it has to match. Yeah, that is correct. And I assume match, quote unquote, means SSL. So if you have a, a master screen. domain, I believe. I think it, well, I mean, Xander may correct me on that, but I think it's specific to, I mean, you can special characterize it as domain specific, I believe, but that may not be the case. Xander's <laughs> done more research, but I, I think that's true. Yeah, it might be, <laughs> might be worth asking him about because you could subdomain, you have a subdomain like, like for us, you know, portagebay.com's our main domain. We could have a subdomain of um, uh, mickeymouse.portagebay.com and and that would, <laughs> that would still match because the, the parent domain was still correct. I'm not sure what match means exactly. Obviously, the domain on the on the web server would have to be the SSL certificate that it's checking against, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. And is it the is it the API called that needs to have uh the that verifies the SSL or is it like iframe that's that's verifying the SSL? That's a great question. I mean, because in the scope of this, he's he's looping it back around into inside of a web viewer, right? Right, exactly. This is actually <laughs> just coming back through. So like Safari. Yeah, whatever your default. This isn't happening in the web web viewer this is happening oh outside yeah Yeah, the default the default browser for the user yeah what's the the actual uri that it's hitting though the callback itself that's where you're redirecting back into filemakers web viewer right not the actual tokenization where you're you're pulling the 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 token value or whatever off of the search like the javascript you know javascript saying window.location search yeah that's the, the query param yeah let's think about that so web web viewer is going to go ahead and um get a response and this is the url that it's going to get as its response and it's going to fire that off and so that would be handled the same as if you were calling that from a card window you know it's a fmp url call which goes outside to safari and says open up filemaker <laughs> yeah and so, so instead of doing it within FileMaker, you could just continue to have your default browser open everything, and it would just be like you're authenticating, like you're using a web app, right? You you make the selection outside of the scope of FileMaker. It wouldn't yes. matter. Call it, yeah, okay. Yeah, you can ha- have the entire process happen outside of a web viewer. You could have it happen in the browser, yeah. Gotcha. For authentication. It's going to give it the same same process. And then the FMP URL is what's needed in order to pass that parameter back uh, to a script. And then in the script, we unpack, uh, we unpack it and pull out the values that we need. So just to close out the, what we started talking about a tiny bit while you were answering the door, um, can you you restate what exactly has to match a domain in terms of the domain, the, the, the callback URI domain has to match what? So it has to be approved as part of your works. So for us, oh, okay, okay. For us, our we have portagebay.com. So it ne- you need to prove control of the domain that right. it's coming from with Google 
in order to act as a secure gotcha. endpoint. Okay. Got it. Because we are already set up in our in our in our um, workspace uh, account, we are already set up with portagebay.com, and that's part of our email address. That's already assumed. If you didn't, then you would have to prove. Then you have to go through the process to prove ownership of the domain that you're using. So then for somebody thinking about this for the first time or wanting to attempt this or needing to attempt this in the very short term, and that's why they're watching this, give them some hour guesses on how much effort to to put into your first attempt on connecting all these dots together. Yeah. Well, so initially I was really like, uh, I was, I was like, oh, that'll be simple. <laughs> <laughs> Programmer's creed. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the, the, the programmer in me started, bit, well, you know, 20 hours is probably good. And then, um, but then it's, you know, 30 to 40 hours is more reasonable from what I've experienced. And th that's not just the authorization process that would be making the API call too, but, but like, um, and, and as you know, you know, how, how long did it take, um, on the QuickBooks integration, you know, how much, yeah. how much time does it take? Like getting the connection is half the, half the battle. Um, once you have that part out, then the, the other parts kind of fall into place, but each piece kind of takes a while. So maybe, maybe to get the authorization, like not knowing anything about it, getting it all set up. Um, if you have really good, uh, instructions, you could probably do it in just a, a, a few hours, but, if you're having to discover all of this from scratch, I would say 20 to 30 hours was a, was about what it took yeah, to, I'd say to so. figure this out. And then that was for the service account. And then I had to repeat that for, um, <laughs> for solving for the, um, yeah, user, for user user account. Yeah. Yeah. And initially it was actually, we'd written it for graph. So it was kind of nice that the graph and service account are used somewhat similar, very similarly. Right. Oh yeah. Because mm -hmm. Microsoft has service accounts as well. They're domain wide. Um, so that transferred over, over pretty well um, to using the service account with Google. And I would say if you've touched any API, that's that's also about a quarter of the battle. Like if you've if you've already gone through somebody somewhere, constant contact or QuickBooks or something, and you're wanting to go to Google or or whatever, then it it will translate. It's just a matter of discovering, oh, that's how Google does it, or oh, that's how Microsoft does it, or you know, there's there are those little road bumps, but it won't be as bad the second or third time around. Yeah. Yeah. Your your first call is gonna, you know, getting the response and then you've got to set up all of the all of the stuff around it. And there's some good examples uh that um like Salient has yeah. uh, for doing this. Um they don't they're using their own URI as well. Um, and that's what I'm curious about is what's the a better way to handle the URI for this, uh, where you can really restrict and control access. You know, is it something where we could have the URI that it's uh, it's responding to instead of responding in the local redirect that it's sending it to a server directly, right? Mm. And then capturing it there some somehow. Um, but I, I don't, that gets a little fuzzy and outside of what, <laughs> what I'm able to comprehend at the moment. <laughs> that would, wouldn't that require that you circumvent the user? Well, so it's sending it back to a server, right? So theoretically, oh, so you're, you get it. you're saying once the, once the user approves, 
making the the URI redirect back to the server? Is that what you mean? Yeah, or or the whole the whole process. Like, let's say that you know we just had it open a web viewer, a, not a web viewer. The web viewer is actually hosted on the server, but you could have it open Safari, and the interaction at the Safari level is. You don't need FileMaker in the loop basically to get the authentication. Mm. You just need oh. a web page that's going to provide uh, allow you to have that call. So you'd set up you basically set up an authorization website that can be uh, that the authorization can go into, and in the back end, it passes the tokens to FileMaker to server to file for FileMaker server to be able to use them. Yeah, you'd have to create like a microservice to do something like that, where yeah. it would accept. And reroute yeah. specific to a solution, yeah. Yeah, and so the good part about that would be, you know, um, there's no .js libraries for controlling this type of access and and setting it up correctly, so you it's less error prone. It's never going to if everything's happening in the back end, your front end is just the the user interface. They're going to provide access and and yes, but it, so it would prompt it would throw you to a uh, to a, into you know, Safari, or it, it could be in WebDirect, but it would send you to a web page that's not FileMaker derived. It's it's an actual website hosted on a server. And then everything happens in the back end of the server, which is where it should be. So, so you don't have to worry about it. And you're using more standardized, a more standardized process that that's really been hammered on and debugged, you know, using Node.js or, or something along those lines or PHP, even if you wanted to. Yeah. Could you use the uh, FileMaker data API to uh, uh, to fire off a script, fire off that same script with the parameter? Um, well, your server. So from the server side, right, you get that response. The server can call FileMaker data using data API. It can. Right. Um, it can also put it. You know, using ESS, it could put it into the FileMaker database. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could do it, but but probably data API would be the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you could even do that in your JavaScript. You could have a function to, to fire off the, right? You could have a function to fire off the data API just right from that. The, uh, once the user, uh, uh, you know, does their, does their, their, their um, you know, accept or deny, you know, their uh, process, could that fire off a, a script to run PSOS just using data API? Yeah. So we'd imagine okay. this was in a browser. They would click on it and then they would say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to give this. And we're in a browser, we're not in FileMaker. And it, it says it already has it, but they would hit continue, you know, yes, allow it. Um, yeah. At that point, it's all happening on the server. And then the server itself, you just, you'd have a a function that would fire off in the back end that would say, you know, pass, use the data API, connect to FileMaker server and pass this variable in. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that might be a cleaner way to do it. It might be worth refactoring it that direction um, because that really removes the possibility of the man in the middle uh, attack problem right. where if you were doing this right now and, you know, it sends back the uh, redirect um, right, right then, because I'm, if I, you know, if I'm not on a, if I'm not on a VPN, I'm going over HTTP, HTTPS. It's possible for that traffic to be intercepted. And I mean, I'm not a security expert, but we've we're kind of going with the with the general consensus of what we've found. A man in the middle attack could uh, 
could entail, um, it's possible that it could get intercepted. And, and then if they did, they would have your access token or refresh token. Um, another problem that we did notice uh, with one of the clients is um, depending on how the work group is set up uh, or, or their Google workspace accounts are set up and the same with Microsoft Graph, there's a um, expiration date that third-party apps can have that access. So uh, you can't control it on an individual account. Um, in this instance, like I can't control, like and say this is going to expire in you know 24 hours or whatever. But on a workspace oh. account, you can control third-party access. And so they have theirs set, and it would expire um, every week, I believe. And so the user would be have to go through the uh, authentication approval process uh, once a week to you know reestablish that uh, that FileMaker has permission to access it. And that was that was a pretty aggressive aggressively conservative security setting. Um, that's probably not the default. Is that true? Yeah, I would I would imagine it depends. Uh, do you remember setting up those any of that permissions on? I not for our you know for our use of Google Workspace um, for the client we're talking about. I I I guess we'd have to look at our settings and see if our default settings match what they theirs were. I assumed that they're that they must have made it a little more aggressive to to trigger that weekly um, that that weekly re reauthorization that was happening. Um, yeah, basically keep the you know. Because you know you're going to have certain users who are going to be like, "Oh yeah, give it access," and then yeah. <laughs> you don't want those to be hanging out there yeah. year over year. You know, find out you know yeah. three They're years pretty... that some site that got compromised has access to your. Yeah, they're a pretty large. On they're a pretty decent sized institution, so it makes sense that they'd want to have a conservative, conservative setting for that. Like, I makes sense. Yeah. So it's been, it's been fascinating. So the surface account, well, is a lot more, is, is easier to implement from the FileMaker side should only happen on the server. Of course, gives you the ability to use any domain wide There's some security concerns in there because it is domain wide. Um, but it doesn't require this, uh, this process where you're providing access, uh, and, and having that HTTP response, uh, come back um i think that we you know we, we should research and it'd be worth looking at doing it without you know setting up a web server that's running like node.js microservice that can process this uh for us and pass it back to whatever server we need um just so that we don't then don't have to rely on uh clients having a very secure connection whenever they are providing access to it um, the other option too is also if, if in this instance we're using using Portage Bay's um, workstation workspace account, Google Workspace account. Uh, if the clients have a workspace account, they can set up the project in their account and provide access and um, and make it much more seamless. And Jacob, you went through that process when you were setting up um, and testing for some of the stuff for Portage Bay to use. Uh, Portage Bay's workspace and using yeah. API interaction, right? What? How did that go? Do you remember how that process worked? Uh, so right now it's specific to uh, my account, which was something we were we were going to 
<laughs> actually look at if oh, we could yeah. change that. But right now it's it's relying upon since I'm you know in the organization under Portage Bay's Google, like that's the main head, right? Uh, Portage Bay and in Google, uh, I'm just a user of that group. Um, so it's specific to my permissions. So whatever permissions I have is what the solution has while accessing yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. so you do have to pay for those accounts. And so, yeah, we were looking at like, should we get a, should we get a robot <laughs> account that can do stuff? <laughs> um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and that that was the same process where you you get sent to the um, you get sent to a page in order to provide access for your Gmail account for Portage Bay Solutions. But because you're already part of that domain, um, it doesn't have to be authenticated on the back end. The app doesn't have to be verified. That sort of thing, right? Yeah. Well, no. Uh, I I still go through the same it's still the same authentication, but like you said, once it's evaluated once, at least I have not hit an, an expiration period aside from the token resetting. Yeah. That's what you're talking. Yeah. Well, so that's pretty much it for URI. It's uh, it, it's not terribly complicated. Um, I think just in our discussion, it would be you know worthwhile considering using a microservice and getting that set up. But as it is, you know, it gives us that ability to use to use Google APIs, and this the process is pretty pretty much very it's very similar uh, to the way Graph works as well. They have service accounts and they have client accounts, and you have to do the same sort of um, uh, approval process. So, is there any place that somebody can go get this HTML code if they wanted to try and make their own URI for the first time? Um, not that I know of, I, you, you could, um, you know, we should probably maybe make it available so anybody could pull it down if they wanted to. You could put it on the, on the GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We can make sure and publish that along with this podcast. Uh, we'll be, we'll be doing some sort of, we'll probably do a short blog post to uh, make, make this available and we could include a URL for this file if we, if we, if we want to. Yeah, um, and you can see here the dollar sign domain. It, you know, for FileMaker, it gets the server from the server location that it's accessing it from. So when it's called, that's what it passes through. But that could be any server, and that's where it's going to send it. You could hard code it to go to a server directly from as a response directly to a server, I believe, and I might be wrong there, but. <laughs> But where the response would go directly to whatever server you set it to, um, but I'd it's have worth to an experiment. Through. Yeah, I'm I, I'm thinking out loud, and maybe that's not the best <laughs> way to think about. But as we're talking, you know, <laughs> like could you put that to some other you know domain, and it would pass it directly there, or is it going to pass it back and open that domain in your browser? And I think it is going to open that in your browser, so it will have been passed to you, and then it passed on to the other browser. Whereas if uh, if you're using a like a microservice that's coming from that domain, the server's making the the call, it's going to come and go from that server, not through your FileMaker client. Thank you for spending your time with us at the FileMaker DevCast today. We hope you found something useful, something thought provoking, and something to take into your own development approach. 
things that help you to be more productive and to allow you and your team to get more done in less time. Find us online at portagebay.com and filemakerdevcast.com and also on social media at fmdevcast and portagebay. Let us know if we can help you or your company with modernizing your approaches and streamlining your workflow. We look forward to seeing you at the next DevCast.